This is Cast Club Radio. Brought to you by Heritage Distilling. On Cast Club Radio, we believe every spirit has a story. And stories like good drinks are always better when shared with friends. Each week, we'll explore the intersection of cocktails, spirits, beer, wine, and life. It's Cast Club Radio. Here's your hosts, Lydia Cruz and Justin Stiefel. Good afternoon, friends. Welcome to another episode of Cast Club Radio. Hope everyone is doing great on this fine Saturday. How are you guys? My name is Lydia Cruz. I almost forgot. <laughs> well, and I'm Justin Stiefel. I'm Maura Dooley. How are you guys this weekend? How are you doing? Good. Rain is around the corner. Thankful we don't live in a hurricane zone. Oh, and, yes. Uh, That's with those people. Excited for the actual football season to start tomorrow. And, it's like uh, Christmas Eve. Forward, yeah. yeah. Looking forward to seeing how our home football team does. And I was shocked when I was reading this week's prognostications from some of the quote-unquote experts uh, in the East Coast where they said that uh, they expect the Seahawks to go 0-5 to open the season. And I thought, there's no way. Wow. There's no way. Wow, even with yeah. the Bengals matchup. That is crazy. <laughs> crazy yeah. yeah. But that just tells you what the national perception is versus the local one. And you always got to take the, the East Coast Sorry, Maura. The East Coast perception of the West Coast with a grain of salt. <laughs> Just like you have to take the West Coast perception of the East Coast with a grain of salt. Because, True. You know. But uh, I will say football is one of those things that signifies that it's fall more than anything else. Another one that might be on that list is pumpkin spice. <laughs> I don't know why. We talk about this one a lot. Yes, we have on this show in the past. We've gone through, you know, we've talked about the trend that is pumpkin spice and all the ways that it is permeating not just food and beverage, but kind of lifestyle and culture, too. And it is one of those... Those ways that you know, well, yeah, now it is time to turn your calendars and sort of move through the season. This year, right, it it premiered earlier than it ever has. It was almost a week early. It premiered the 27th of August, so well before Labor Day, well before the official start of fall. And we started seeing things pop up in, in uh, at least the Starbucks stores and others are going to follow suit. I wonder if Starbucks did that early to make a jump on everybody else because everybody else who's been doing some kind of pumpkin spice thing, of which last year we, we reported there were 16,000 products with pumpkin spice in them. They figured they'd get an extra week or two head start. I treat the launch of pumpkin spice latte season kind of like Lent. I'm fasting. So I've <laughs> been able to go now two weeks without having a pumpkin spice latte. Wow. Ow. Is that normally something that you go Indulgent. after when it, right when it comes out? No, uh, I don't drink pumpkin spice lattes, but I, if I feel better uh, saying that I've been able to achieve a goal. Oh, there uh, you go. Now I am remembering how clean. you handle Lent. Yeah, that, that is. That is. Well, if you are a yeah. fan <laughs> of pumpkin spice, we support it here. And even later in the show, we'll have a, a, a good take on it. And when it comes to the cocktail side of it, if you might want to add just a little... Make it an adult beverage, add a little booze to it. So that's coming up later in the show. But right now, what's in the headlines? Well, this is interesting. You know, as an attorney, I always am interested in, in lawsuits that people file. So someone from Florida has filed a lawsuit against Bacardi and Bombay Sapphire Gin for selling illegal gin in the state of Florida. How can that possibly be? Well, it's because both uh, Bombay Sapphire and Bacardi in their gins use something called Grains of Paradise, which is a uh, spice. In Florida, it is against the law to use Grains of Paradise for some reason. The article here talks about how uh, the plaintiff is accusing the gin makers of adultering alcohol with Grains of Paradise in a fashion that is illegal. 
and that they're using unfair methods of competition and unconscionable acts to uh, deceive consumers in this trade practice. And they want to form a class action to get as many plaintiffs as possible to try and drive up the value of the lawsuit. And uh, this is just insanity because, first off, uh, as someone who legally produces the spirit, you can't really adulter it. Um, whatever you do in the recipe before you put it in the bottle and then seal it and then put it in the commerce, it's, that's not adultered. That's actually production. Adulteration comes after someone has gotten their hands on it and done something else with it, but uh, that's, neither, that's neither here nor there. So we'll keep you posted on what happens with this crazy, crazy lawsuit. So is your objection are you to more the lawsuit or just the wording and the semantics of it, as you mentioned? My objection is to the idea that if you feel aggrieved that someone put Grains of Paradise in the gin, which mm-hmm. is stated on the label, then don't buy it. Yeah. But don't buy it with the idea that you're then going to sue and try and extract money from somebody. It's, That's Yeah, it seems almost uh, trendy to have these class action lawsuits these days. They're, you see the advertisements yeah. on TV everywhere. So, yeah, just another extension of that. Meanwhile, also kind of a... Speaking of weird things that we have to talk about sometimes, this trend coming out of the UK is a bit troubling. A crazy from MSN.com. People are inhaling vodka from balloons at bars and apparently gets you drunk instantly. That's the headline. Uh, This is something really stupid. Don't do this at home. Uh, Inhaling vodka from balloons because uh, when you aerate it and you turn it into that kind of gaseous form and then you the, the vapor is the most flammable thing. It's not the liquid that burns, it's the vapor that burns. So if you are inhaling vodka into your lungs uh, and then you uh, get close to a a, uh, flame source, there's a potential that you could actually catch your lungs on fire and and explode them from the inside out. Uh, People are doing this to get drunk quickly. It makes sense that you get intoxicated quickly because the vapor mixed with oxygen gets in your lungs, and the job of your lungs is to take air put it into your bloodstream as fast as possible, and then it circulates throughout your bloodstream. So this will get you drunk very quickly in a very dangerous way, and uh, I'm not sure who came up with this idea, but it's just ridiculously stupid. I don't understand how it's being served in bars. bars. Yeah, like maybe the U.K. has different laws than us, but I, I had to go to classes every year when I was a bartender and learn about over serving because, you know, Obviously, on a weekend night when it's busy, there are people that are going to get drunk at the bar. But technically, you're not supposed to overserve anyone and can be held responsible mm-hmm. if they do something like get behind the wheel and get into a car crash and hurt someone. So something that is just the sole purpose is to get you drunk fast. I'm surprised that bars are allowed to serve that. Yeah. It, 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 again, cultural differences here may come into play, but I was I, I found that to be the most shocking part as well. We, usually when we talk about these weird trends, it's it's just kids or people doing them at home and by by themselves mm-hmm. or making videos of it. But it was a it was an extra degree of weird to see that it was offered in certain bars and five pounds uh, per balloon filled with the gaseous vodka. So. You know, they're making a lot of money on that. (laughs) So it's a very high margin for vodka gas. don't do this at home, kids. No, don't do it anywhere. Well, one thing you can do at home is drink wine in a box, which some people on this show are huge fans of. You know, I'll raise my hand. It's definitely me as well. Uh, I've partaken in that. Up next on Cast Club Radio, we get into the history of wine in a box, some things you might find surprising about it. It's also now transitioned to wine in a can. It's growing still. So that's next on Cast Club Radio.
Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. We here at the show are big fans of wine in any shape or form and wine in a box. Uh, both Moore and I have uh, participated. Justin, are you a fan? I will partake if necessary at the appropriate time. <laughs> okay, that's, fa- that's fair. My know- thing is that it lasts longer once it's opened. Sure. Um, it's and it's so- kind of like asking a, a thirsty man in the desert if he'll yeah. drink dirty water. You know? <laughs> I do realize there is a certain stigma about boxed wine, but I agree with you more. There actually is a certain practical application to it if you need it to last a little bit longer. And or if you are drinking it with friends or something, there's... Mm-hmm. Or the portability of it, too, is another one um, where we've used it when we've gone camping and things like that before. But we actually found a great article from Medium.com that talks about a little bit of the history of wine in a box because a lot of this I didn't know. Yeah, well, even when I was a kid 25 years ago, this uh, phenomenon hit the U.S. and and people were talking about the time. I remember my mom and dad would buy it on occasion. And and in all this discussion uh, that we've had the last two years about canned wine, uh, we've just quit talking about box wine for some reason. So these articles are interesting in the context of everything else that's going on in packaging. So the boxed wine concept was started about 50 years ago from an Australian winemaker. I mean, let's start right there. Isn't that crazy to you? What would you have guessed if people just said, when when did you believe the boxed wine trend started? Because I would have said like maybe 20 years ago. Yeah. So this is incredible to me. It is. So uh, a gentleman named Thomas Angove from Australia, he's an Australian winemaker. He filed a patent for what now we call the bag in the box. It had a a collapsible plastic bag inside the cardboard box. The bag initially was difficult to handle. People who bought the box had to take the bag out of the box, cut a corner to get to the wine, and then put the uh, stuff it back in the box. And if you didn't consume the whole box at one sitting, you had to then uh, open it up and then close the bag with a um, paper clip or a peg or some tape or something like that. Very cumbersome. Very cumbersome. Yeah, not very functional. And, uh, yeah. Not functional and, and messy, you know. So uh, people thought it would not catch on, but it started to take off. And Australians went for it in a big way because it was cheaper than other wine and a lot cheaper than spirits. The bladder or the bag in the box revolutionized how Australians started drinking uh, on certain occasions and for certain traditions. And it was thought that one of the attractions was that no one could see how much you actually were consuming because the level drop was uh, all within the bladder. There was a downside, though, and that was that kids could help themselves to wine and the parents would never know that they were doing this and they were never able to track the volumes of what was going on. Kind of like, uh, Lydia, you know, when you were in high school and your dad would come in and ask you, uh, why is my whiskey bottle three mm. inches short today? Right? Yeah, no, no, yeah. Lydia was, no, uh, what is, I, was a huge nerd and uh, never never did that. <laughs> I was going to say, I can't see Lydia getting in trouble <laughs> in high school. No, yeah. no, me neither, me neither. Uh, <laughs> Later on, though, a different winery came up with the idea of adding the tap that we all know yes. now, which is that plastic tap and you can put your finger on it and up and down makes it very easy to pour a glass keeps the wine uh, away from air so it's airtight it preserves the wine a lot longer and just much easier to use and to your point earlier whether you're camping or tailgating traditional wine much of the weight of uh, wine is in the glass bottle itself the glass is very thick it's dense so if you can get rid of that and go to just the liquid with very light bag and very light cardboard, you have really cut down on the weight you are transporting around. And again, the uh, beauty of it is that it 
preserves the whatever wine is in there from not having contact with the air. That, that's a big deal for winemakers. Prevents oxidation. Yeah. And now we've seen lots of different products come up from different manufacturers, different wineries, different brands. Uh, probably the biggest one is uh, the called the Black Box Cabernet. It's got that familiar black color and kind of the red uh, lettering on it. But the question that's posed, would you bring boxed wine to a dinner party? You know, this is an interesting question because I think maybe growing up our generation, there's almost an element where we've found these things that may be have supposed stigmatism to them for being, there's just a certain stigma around box wine, whether it's cheap or yeah. you're being too cheap or you're being too well, frugal. Because it used to be only like Franzia and that was looked yes. down upon. Mm-hmm. But now there are some that are decent. Yeah. Perhaps. But I would also say that our generation sort of seems to embrace those things, whether it is the uh, quote, quote, hipster movement. But we have bars in Seattle that serve 40s out of paper bags and drinking, you know, <laughs> whatever your Miller High Life or whatever is is considered sort of almost a cool thing. So Very I true. think actually you would find a lot of my generation, our generation is is totally fine with this and would think it is a, a funny theme to a party to bring it. But if you're going to a serious dinner party, no. I don't think so. It's probably, I, well, I would probably point, uh, take the bottle. Th- there are a lot of restaurants and bars now and stadiums where they have wine on tap. It's a full keg, like the size of a beer keg from the winery that's been delivered, and it's all on tap. It has nothing to do with the bottle. I I think um, right now it's convenience and price that drives this. But um, if a winemaker decided they want to come out with a very premium boxed wine and they put in like a, a 97 98 99 point rated wine in the box and tried to position it that way they'd be the only one in on the market positioning a premium wine in a larger serving size specifically for parties and in a way that was uh, more eco-friendly they may they may hit on something yeah i'd agree too maybe it comes down to as we know a lot about branding and about packaging we talked about the canned wine trend and how I've gone to the stores lately and they seem to be flying off the shelves, even though they aren't particularly cost effective for people. People are buying four to five dollar cans of wine. And I think a lot of it, again, is the packaging and how they've done such a great job at, at branding and creating that aesthetic of I want to be part of this or want to be seen drinking this. So maybe there are some more creative solutions for boxed wine that would help it appeal to a different crowd. Yeah, well, according to the article, in Europe, boxed wine has become so commonplace um, that it has started to dominate uh, sales. Uh, European sales of boxed wine uh, overshadows boxed wine sales in the U.S. Uh, Boxed wine is one of the fastest growing forms of wine packaging in the world, with about 50% sold in Australia, Norway, and Sweden. Uh, Globally, it's increasing 20% a year. And uh, carton wine is on the rise, too, with a 21.7% increase just within the last year. Those countries are interesting, too. Norway and Sweden. Australia, we mentioned, has a long history with it. But I wonder how they feel about this, per se, in France and and Italy. Kind of what you consider Italy, the birthplaces yeah. of wine. Yeah, exactly. Australia, Norway, and Sweden are high tax areas, um, especially Norway and Sweden. They've got the very high VAT taxes. So, so again, that if price... You are a, Cost yep. efficiency. And shipping. You got to yeah. ship it. Ship it to get there. If you are a manufacturer or a retailer, and you can wring out the cost of packaging, 
and reduce your freight costs, then uh, you can put products more attractively priced on the shelf and be more competitive against traditional uh, bottled wine. Makes sense. We'll make sure this article is available for you if you want to check it out at heritagedistilling.com. And, hey, we support drinking wine in all of its forms as long as you're you're doing it safely. Yes. Well, I know what I'm going to do uh, for our white elephant gift for Christmas uh, for the party I go to is I'm going to go find, because, you know, you're always capped at 20 bucks, no more than 20 bucks for the white elephant gift. Uh, I'm going to get a box of wine. No more than 20 bucks. I'm going to wrap it up, and that will be what I put under the tree for the white elephant gift. I don't think anyone would be disappointed by that. Yeah. (laughs) Congrats to that person. (laughs) Maybe you'll be invited to the party. (laughs) Coming up on Cast Club Radio, we get to chat with Tyler Tanner, who is a super late model race car driver sponsored by Heritage Distilling. This is pretty cool. I have so many questions already, including what is super late model racing and i'm excited to talk to tyler that's next on cast club radio Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. Right now, we are chatting with Tyler Tanner, late model race car driver, sponsored by Heritage Distilling. How are you, Tyler? I'm great. How are you? Pretty excellent. Tyler's been very busy this season. He races up at the Evergreen Speedway near Monroe, and and uh, I think you also will pop around to a few other races up and down the West Coast. How, how many races you've been in so far this season? Probably somewhere around 15 so far. We only have one scheduled. For the remainder of this season, which not this coming weekend, but the following weekend, I believe it's September 14th or 15th, whichever day the Saturday is. That's the last, our last race of the season. And I believe you guys are even the title sponsor of the race. It's the Heritage Stilling 100. Yep. Yep, it is. Yeah. And Tyler, Tyler's been driving the number 65 car. Is that right? Yep. Nice. Well, Maura and I, our day job, we work at 710 ESPN Seattle. So we are around sports a lot. And one of my questions is, how does one get involved in race car driving? I feel like that is sort of a dream that you have maybe when you're a kid, but how how does it become a reality? It probably varies for every individual. Um, In my specific scenario, both my mom and dad raced. My mom's two brothers raced. Her dad raced. Um, My dad's half-brother raced. I mean, it was kind of a whole family affair, so I almost didn't even have a choice. Um, <laughs> I uh, I started when I was around four or five years old. I did a lot of other sports and stuff in school, just nothing ever stuck. I don't know if it was because of everyone else in my family's involvement in racing um, and being surrounded by it, surrounded by it all the time, but, you know, soccer, basketball, football, I just didn't enjoy any of those sports quite as much. Um the only sport that I was somewhat serious about, was, other than racing, was golf through high school. Oh, nice. But yeah, I don't, you know, I, I think some people, it's natural, like it was for me. Um, other people may not have that same upbringing or the same, I guess, privilege, I guess, if you want to call it that. I mean, it really made it easy for me, but um, not everyone has that, so it, it, it does become more of a dream that you have to go and chase a little bit harder. And I mean, it still is from my standpoint, but... It's definitely a lot easier having the support and understanding of everyone, almost everyone in our family. Well, like so many sports, you know, athletes, um, people really see only what the athlete is doing 
during the actual game or event, you know, they don't get a full view to all the prep work that goes into leading up to that game or that event. For a typical race, how much time are you spending working on your car in the garage and just trying to get things perfected? Pretty much every available minute in my life. If I'm being honest, I couldn't even put a number to it. it it's kind of it's crazy how much time you spend in the shop for a half hour's worth of fun on a Saturday night. But <laughs> that's uh, that's what it takes if you want to be successful because there's so many other people that putting in the work and effort, just like any other sport, there's always going to be someone better than you or there's always going to be someone working harder than you or have more resources than you. So if you want to remain successful, you, I, I, there is no minimum amount of time. You just, I don't know, I mean, it's become it's become a lifestyle for me over the past probably 10 years. I know we traveled all over the country when I was racing as a kid, but, you know, we still have a still have a childhood, I guess. I still would go to friends' houses and do after-school activities or, you know, whatever it may be. But now I really don't do anything other than figure out how to pay my bills and then work on my race car. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, race car driving, probably yacht racing, horse racing, they've got to be among the most expensive sports that uh, people participate in. If someone were to come and say, hey, Tyler, I want to get into this. Give me some advice. What's it going to cost for them to get their first car, put it together, and enter their first race? Yeah, I mean, it's as much as you want to spend. And it's, again, it's, I think that's part of the uniqueness of those type of sports and what makes them harder to get into is how much money it takes. And you could buy a car for, say, $10,000 and go race, but you're never going to, no matter how good you are, how much time you put into it, you're never going to be successful you still have to have good equipment i mean it's a multi-piece puzzle and equipment is a major part of it so you can some guys will just buy a car turnkey from a manufacturer and it's one hundred twenty thousand dollars for one race car and then you still have expenses to go race tires and fuel and pit passes and travel hotels food etc so i mean it's really as much as you want to spend some people can race on about a 40,000 a year budget at the level that we race at, um, which is, you know, a kind of a regional super late model series. And some people will race those cars all around the country year round and spend upwards of a million dollars doing it. So, I mean, it's really as much as you want to spend. And unfortunately, I think that's part of the current frustrations of, of the industry is some drivers will just, they may have wealthy parents and they just buy a ride. So then it, it takes up a seat or it takes up an opportunity for someone that may have been working harder. You know, that's just that's just what it's become. It's almost become a business model in the racing industry. And I'm sure it's the same in, in some of the other higher cost sports that you rattled off. Tyler, what about skill set? Because maybe it is a little bit less accessible to people. So what would you describe as the most important skills if you want to be a race car driver? What does it take to be elite? You know, I don't want to comment a whole lot on other sports because I don't know a lot about but I would think it's kind of the same core values, like how much desire, determination, dedication you have. I wouldn't say anybody can develop skill sets, but mm-hmm. if you work hard enough at something, um, whether it's a sport or a business or whatever, I mean, you can be successful, I, I would think. But Does it include know, things just, like vision, timing, those kinds of things, just from a basic even standpoint? Yeah, it does, but those are all things that just come with seat time, I guess. So the more experience you have, the more um, you develop those uh, skills, if if you if you will. Um, I would imagine a little fearlessness. I, how yeah, how, how fast are you going in your races? Yeah, 
depends on the size of the track, but we don't go anywhere huge. Um, one of the bigger racetracks that the type of cars we race will is actually at Evergreen Speedway. Um, they have two tracks there. So the bigger track, you may go almost 140 there. Wow. Where, you know, what you see on TV and stuff, those guys go pretty fast because they're on bigger racetracks, mile and a half, two mile speedways. But the cars have really gotten a lot safer. So I think that fearlessness is less prevalent than it might have been in the 80s or 90s of, you know, what you would have seen with the race car drivers because, I mean, it's just evolution of the sport. A lot of guys were killed and safety has improved drastically because of it. So now you can, I mean, I've never been in like a, I mean, I've hit the wall a few times hard, but I've never been in a huge crash, but you can crash pretty hard in these things and not feel anything. So I think that's taken away some of the fearlessness of current drivers um, or like my generation of drivers is just, you have, you've had all those safety features growing up racing that guys didn't have 20 years ago you know when they hit the wall they felt in their ribs or their shoulders or their neck for weeks we don't we don't have that you pretty much get out and walk away and you're just bummed about what your race car looks like (laughs) i gotta imagine that bladder size uh, also features prominently (laughs) success on a long race i don't know i'm not much of a body scientist or whatever you may call that but uh, i think you, you sweat a lot of that out so that it's not oh, yeah. as common as you might think um it's hot inside the race cars that are enclosed and if it's a whatever 90 or 100 degrees day out it might be 130 degrees inside the car so you sweat most of your water weight out and you're wearing those uh, heavy fire suits right yeah the, i mean those and then you know another safety aspect that's came a long way they're still hot don't get me wrong but what they were just when I was a kid growing up racing as compared to what they are now, different materials and everything. They're, they're way better, but it is still, you know, wearing a full suit and getting in a hot race car. So <laughs> it's definitely warm. We, we were, uh, we were asking off the air, uh, you drive super late model cars. What is a super late model car? What does that mean? It's just a variation. So a late model is kind of the most generic term of a full body NASCAR type race car, but it, more, you know, a smaller racetrack or more regional level rather than a national touring series. But a super late model is just, you know, and there's there's super late models, limited late models, pro late models. They're all just subtle variations of the same thing. So like super late model has the most horsepower and the widest tire, the most amount of grip, and they're the lightest weight cars out of all of the late models. Where a pro late model is very similar car, but has 200 less horsepower. A limited late model is know even scaled down more it'll have narrower tires that are treaded and not a lot of horsepower and they're a heavier car so there's but they all from a fan's perspective they're all the same thing the only thing you really would be able to tell a difference or the only noticeable difference would be the sound i guess you know the more horsepower a car makes the louder it is typically so tyler you are uh you're a member of the cast club and i have been to our distilleries you want to share with listeners kind of your experience to date on that yeah, it's been really cool. Um, I've you know prior to this whole partnership, I've I've never really seen anything like that at any. Um, I mean, you see craft distilleries here and there throughout, especially in in the, in the Northwest, but I've never seen anything like that. So um, I mean, it was natural for me to start one, and I did a single malt Scotch my first my first run, and it really was. I didn't drink. I get. To, I didn't get to drink as much of it as I would have liked. I I used a lot of it for gifts at the end of the season for. Um, <laughs> different people that supported our race race team throughout the season, crew members, um, sponsors, pretty much everyone that played a part of our racing season. You know, you guys do that customization of the label so you can put a 
whatever, you know, a note or a memo or something on there, what, what the bottle signifies. And so I used a lot of mine for gifts. Um, I think I have a bourbon going in it now, though, since that, that one was empty. So maybe I'll get to drink a little bit of the, the bourbon. Well, we're thrilled to have you as a member of the Cast Club, and uh, we're even more thrilled to be sponsoring your car and to be supporting what you do at the Evergreen Raceway. So we want to wish you good luck at the uh, Heritage 100 coming up, and uh, hope you stay safe. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate everything you guys have done for us, and hopefully we'll see a bunch of you out there. And if people want to learn more about you, where can they find out? Most everything through Facebook and Instagram. So just be Tyler Tanner Motorsports on Facebook, and I believe it's the same on Instagram. You know what races we have upcoming, but you know there's not a whole lot of news other than we kind of try and post current pictures and you know results from the racetrack. Well, perfect. Tyler, thank you so much. We know uh, you are spending every spare moment working on your car and getting ready, so we really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. Yeah, thank you, guys. I appreciate you having me. Coming up on Cast Club Radio, we wrap things up. That pumpkin spice boozy drink that I promised, it's coming up. Plus, Distiller Dane, another top five that will help you celebrate the end, the dog days of summer, next on Cast Club Radio. Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. Right now, joined by one of our favorites, Distiller Dane. How are you, my friend? I'm doing good. How are you guys doing? Doing good. Trying to enjoy the uh, dog days of summer here in Seattle and get ready for fall. But I'm sure there is something to get us excited about this time of year involved in your top five. Oh, yeah. Summer, we are in the dog days of it, but it's still kicking. Still got that nice weather coming out, so I've been enjoying it. Awesome, awesome. Well, let's get started. What is number one on your top five this week? I want to know, uh, Dane, as a coog, why you still refer to it as dog days. (laughs) It it was just a saying. Right. It was D-O-G, not D-A-W-G. There it is. There it is. All right. (laughs) Thanks for clarifying, then. (laughs) Number one on your list. Uh, number one on my list, actually went here two weekends ago, and that is the Paradise Inn on Mount Rainier, which is amazing. It's a newly renovated historic lodge on top of the Paradise area of Mount Rainier. Have you guys wow. even visited that area of the mountain before? No, I don't think yes. so. Yes. Yeah, it's it's beautiful up there, um, but it has all of its old school charm. There's even like a nice restaurant in there, and it's right at the beginning of all the trailheads for the Paradise area of the mountain, giving you easy access to them. Um, so you can literally walk right outside and hit the trails. Another fun part about it is you can drink Rainier on Mount Rainier at the Paradise Lodge. <laughs> In fact, you can drink many of them. That is worth it. Just uh, just to say you've been able, you've done that. So poetic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Number two. Um, it gets booked out about a year in advance, so if you want to check it out, now's the time of the year to get ready for next summer. Oh, okay, perfect. Yeah, plan ahead. Number two on your list. Number two on my list is wine tasting in Woodenville. Have you guys made it out to some of the wineries over there? Yes. yes. <laughs> that was a resounding. All right. Well, it's kind of funny because I actually used to live only five minutes away of it, from it for about three years. I never actually made it there to do a whole Woodenville wine tasting tour. And I recently just went. I mean, there's got to be 30 to 35 of them in a quarter mile range. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I... Obviously, one of the most well-known ones is the Chateau Saint-Michel, which is one of the largest ones as well. Uh, But it's pretty neat because you can kind of bring your own food or picnic, grab a bottle of wine, sit down outside on the grass and enjoy it. And our friends at DeLille are moving into the former Red Hook Brewery space, and they're going to turn that into a big visitor center and tasting room. Nice. Nice, nice. 
another option. Yeah, there's so many down there. It's so fun to just kind of uh, pop around and see what everybody's got to offer. They even have a few of the electric scooters over there, so you can scooter between the liners. Smart. Okay. All right, number three. Number three on my list. So a few weeks ago, I was talking about with all the nice weather, the backyard hammocks, getting the little lawn hammock out and relaxing in it. But while I was out camping, I came across something that brings it to the next level, and that is the tent hammock. Oh, what? Um, So some companies out there are making, they're like large six-person tree hammocks, basically like a large um, triangle, kind of like trampoline material, which you ratchet strap between um, three trees, like 10 feet off the ground. And they they even have ladders that hang down from them that you climb up into so you can layer them on top of each other. And they even make one now that has a tent built into it so you can climb multiple layers up and then literally camp in the tree. Wow, 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 wow. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Just remember, at three feet off the ground, the bear can still get you. (laughs) (laughs) Try to go a little higher. That's why they have the multiple layers, you know, keep out of the bear range. That's right. Okay, number four. Uh, Number four on my list is In the Dark, which is a new show I stumbled upon um, that is kind of mildly suspenseful and funny at the same time. Have you guys had a chance to catch this yet? Is this a Netflix series? It is on Netflix, and it's about a, actually, it's about a blind girl, and she's solving a murder mystery of her best friend, Um, and it's it's pretty intriguing and nice. I think there's only uh, one season, pretty easy watch, a little bit longer of episodes, but it keeps you entertained the whole time. I think I have seen that. Yeah, it was maybe originally on the CW or something, but uh, pretty entertaining. Pretty entertaining, like well-written, I thought. The star of the show is really her seeing eye dog named Pretzel. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Number five. So the other thing about Pretzel from that TV show is the first half of the season, I thought they were calling him Pickle the whole time. (laughs) And that leads me into the last one on my list, which is Gin and Tonic Pickles. Ooh, wow. I love, so our oh. uh, compliance officer, Wendy at Heritage, she does pickles every year, and she just did some this last week. And I actually convinced her to add a little bit of gin to the pickle juice. But instead, she came up and created a whole gin and tonic pickle brine, and they're absolutely delicious. I love that oh. idea. Mm-hmm. 24 hours, she says, it's all it takes to make these pickles. They are refrigerator pickles, she says, not crockpot pickles. Which is a lot less work. So if you still have a, a yeah. few summer barbecues in the works, you know, get your little 24-hour pickling equipment out. Sounds good. I'm, well, as we mentioned, we've there's some items on that list that are, are good to enjoy for this final days. I won't say dog days. I'm trying to avoid it for you. The coog days of summer. Is that, is that better? Can we use that? Yeah, I'll take it. I'll take yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he is Distiller Dane. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, guys. Back to work. Well, one thing that is distinctly fall is the pumpkin spice latte trend, which we mentioned earlier in the show. And also, we found a way to incorporate it into this week's cocktail recipe. That's right. Have you uh, been enjoying the pumpkin spice lattes? Uh, me, personally, not a fan, as I mentioned. But, you know, I support people's enjoyment of pumpkin spice. used to work at Starbucks, so I've experienced it firsthand, made many a pumpkin spice latte. They're a little sweet for me. Yeah, a little t- little. A little too much for me, but a little bit like dessert in a cup. Why not? Yeah. Well, this week we are featuring what we call the drunken pumpkin latte. And uh, this requires either our heritage distilling vanilla flavored vodka or our coffee flavored vodka. Mm. Uh, It requires regular coffee, some pumpkin spice creamer, and uh, some pumpkin pie spice, which you can get uh, at any store. So in a glass... You want to put either two ounces of the vanilla vodka or two ounces of the coffee vodka, four ounces of actual coffee, two ounces of the pumpkin spice creamer, 
and uh, stir it, top it with whipped cream, and then sprinkle the pumpkin spice on top. Delicious. Yeah, wow. Yeah, much better with booze. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I know. I need a little more open to this one. <laughs> Ew. Yeah. Now, what, what you probably don't want to do is you don't want to um, take your bottle of vanilla vodka or coffee vodka to drive through windows at Starbucks and hand them the vodka and say, hey, while you yeah. make the pumpkin spice latte, yeah, will you, will you pour this off? in there for yeah, me? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> probably uh, not I don't, the I don't think they'll go for that. Uh, no. Well, if you want to make the drunken pumpkin uh, latte at home, which we support, uh, please check out this recipe available at heritagedistilling.com. You can check out past cocktail recipes there for you. If this may not sound your speed, but you also need some new ideas, check them out where you can also download episodes of the podcast. That's right. And if you've got questions, topics, uh, ideas, observations, send them to us via email at caskclubradio at heritagedistilling.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and on Facebook at Cask Club Radio. We also have uh, a great uh, Instagram account account for BSB Brown Sugar Bourbon. Uh, Brown Sugar Bourbon is the uh, account uh, tag and uh if you want to use a hashtag, we are using hashtag drinking BSB, and you'll see some amazing photographs from around the country and some great cocktail ideas there. Love it. Absolutely. Everyone have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Cask Club Radio, brought to you by Heritage Distilling. Check us out on MyNorthwest.com to learn more and catch up on past episodes. Cask Club Radio, brought to you by Heritage Distilling.